LinkedIn News. Hey, it's Jesse coming at you with a bonus episode because it's Thursday. We've recently launched a podcast network here at LinkedIn. And as part of that network, we have eight new shows. We call them LinkedIn Presents. They're all great. Many of them are brand new. Some of them have been around for a while. They're all shows that I'm listening to, and I'd love to share some of my favorite episodes with you. Today, I am bringing you an episode of the Next Big Idea Club. It's a show hosted by Rufus Griscom. It's been around for a while, a few years. Maybe you've heard it before. Listen to this episode freshly, and then come find Rufus and me on LinkedIn. I think the theory of the extended mind has something to say about that. It, it acknowledges the built-in limits of the biological brain, but it offers some hope in the sense that it says, but we can transcend those limits by drawing in these external resources. That's how we make the most of, of our sort of biological equipment. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, can you think outside your brain? I want to begin this episode by telling you three stories about three very different people. See if you can figure out how they're connected. The first one is about Charles Darwin. It's August 1831, and Darwin is another 22-year-old without a plan. He recently graduated from Cambridge, and he hasn't the faintest idea what to do with himself. Until he gets a letter from an old teacher. It's an invitation to work as a naturalist on a two-year expedition aboard the HMS Beagle. The teacher writes, there never was a finer chance for a man of zeal and spirit. Four months later, Darwin is at sea. He's an apprentice to the ship's captain, Robert Fitzroy. The two of them have lunch together every day, and every day, as soon as they're done eating, Fitzroy sits down and writes in his journal. Eventually, either to flatter his boss or because he can't think of anything better to do, Darwin starts scribbling too. He's never kept a diary before, but he takes to it right away. Soon, the pages of his notebook are brimming with sketches, observations, theoretical meditations, and personal musings. Darwin, it turns out, is able to think on the page. He can work through problems, generate ideas, turn back to past entries, and link them in chains of surprising connections. There's something about putting pen to paper that enables him to order the raucous inner workings of his mind. And with every new entry, he forges a path that will, over the span of 25 years, lead him to the summit of his theory of evolution. It's all there in the notebooks. Cut to the summer of 1945. Jackson Pollock is sitting on the couch of his 8th Street apartment, thinking. He's been sitting here for three straight days. He and his wife just got back from visiting friends out on Long Island, and he can't get the trip out of his mind. The verdant farmland and weathered fishermen's shacks, the cool breezes off the sound, the birds in the morning and the crickets at night. Long Island stirred something in him, and he's been sitting on the couch trying to figure out what to do about it. Finally, the answer comes to him. He gets up, calls his wife, and tells her they're moving to Long Island. That move ends up having a profound effect on his art. 
In New York, he would sit at an easel painting jagged, surreal scenes. Out on Long Island, he works in a light-filled barn nestled in a thicket of trees. He starts unfurling his canvases on the floor, and with the symphonic force of a summer storm, he rains paint down on them, poured from cans, flung or dripped from brushes. Looking back, he'll say that move helped him realize a profound truth. He was homeless in the city. To feel at home, he had to move closer to nature. Only then could he think clearly and paint freely. Let's fast forward one last time. Now it's the 1990s and John Coates is working at the derivatives desk at Goldman Sachs. Every day, Coates draws on his education. He's got a PhD in economics. He crunches numbers and pours over reports to devise trades that are elegant and impeccably logical. And every day, those trades lose money. But sometimes he catches a glimpse of another possibility, though it's not really a glimpse at all. It's a feeling, a feeling in his gut. And when he listens to it, it pays off. Good judgment, Coates eventually concludes, may require the ability to listen carefully to feedback from the body. He's so convinced of this that he leaves Wall Street, goes back to school, becomes an applied physiologist, and uses scientific tests to prove his hunch. And it turns out he's right. Traders who listen to their bodily signals make more rational decisions and in turn, earn more money. So have you figured out what these three very different people have in common? Charles Darwin devised his theory of evolution by working through it on the page. A change of scenery helped Jackson Pollock invent a new artistic style. John Coates made winning financial trades by listening to the unspoken judgments implicit in his racing heart, growling stomach, and flushed skin. All three of them marshaled external resources to sharpen their thinking. They accessed intelligence that existed outside the confines of their craniums. I know that may sound kind of new agey, but the idea that we can extend our minds is supported by an emerging body of scientific research. And that body of research is the subject of a bold new book by my guest today, Annie Murphy-Paul. It's called The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain. Andy says we can get smarter by getting out of our heads. We can outsource our memories to our phones, make decisions based on our bodily sensations, use tactile tools to solve abstract problems, draw inspiration from our surroundings, and argue with our friends to improve our thinking. And Andy tells us we need to extend our minds now more than ever. Trying to keep up with the cognitive demands of modern life has pushed our brains to their limits and modern life shows no signs of easing up. If the world around us won't change, then we have to. It's time to learn to think more expansively. And Annie Murphy-Paul is here to tell us how. Annie Murphy-Paul, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. Thanks, Rufus. I'm so glad to be here. Well, Annie, I read your book, The Way My Kids Eat Ice Cream Sundays. <laughs> it was such a pleasure. And I've begun to implement a number of concrete changes to my life, like more than one, based on the book. Hmm. So this is, a, this is a really fun one for me. I'm so glad to hear that. You know, what, one of the things I love about your kind of thesis that you lay out in the beginning of the book is that it really begins with, with a bit of humility, 
about the human brain, right? Here's, here's mm. a passage from your introduction. You say, we're deluged with reports of discoveries about the brain's astounding abilities. It's lightning quickness and protean plasticity. We're told the brain is a fathomless wonder, the most complex structure in the universe. But when we clear away the hype, we confront the fact that the brain's capacities are actually quite constrained and specific. I think we all feel this individually every day that we, mm -hmm. we struggle to focus, right? We struggle to, to grasp abstract concepts and persist at challenging tasks. So our, our assumption tends to be, oh, I must have gotten a crummy one. Like I must have gotten <laughs> right. the wrong type of brain, right? But that's, right, but that's, right. not, that's not the case. No, in fact, these limitations on the brain are universal. I mean, it, it is there is something rather reassuring about it. At least I, I find it reassuring that um, these are limitations born of the brain status as a biological organ, an evolved organ, and moreover, an organ that evolved to do things that are quite different from what we expect to do it to do today. And so that explains a lot of the difficulties that we have in our day-to-day -day lives in school and in work. And I think the theory of the extended mind has something to say about that. It, it acknowledges the built-in limits of the biological brain, but it offers some hope in the sense that it says, but we can transcend those limits by drawing in these external resources. That's how we make the most of, of our sort of biological equipment. Well, I find it totally reassuring that there are limits to everybody's brains, uh, <laughs> not just mine. I've often said that I find the misbehavior of other people's children very relaxing, and uh, other people's marital tension somehow I find very relaxing. And so this is uh, this is somewhat reassuring. But it's no, it's it's a liberating message that maybe we should expect less from our brains, exactly, but lean on a, a set of capacities that our brains have to interact with this extended world that, that we'll, we'll get into. Yes. But another kind of fascinating piece of background is in, in your wonderful piece in the New York Times Sunday Review about the book, you suggested that in the last century, we've asked more and more and more mm. of our brains. Mm -hmm. And this has to some degree resulted in an increase in, or maybe part of the story of why average IQ scores have been increasing for about a century now, right. but now we see them leveling off and in many countries actually dipping. <laughs> right? yes. so, so there's yeah. some evidence that maybe like we have maxed out yes. our, 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 the, the capacity of our brains as solitary siloed individual organs. And, and this is why a lot of us feel overtaxed, stressed out, yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's such an interesting story for those who've heard of the Flynn effect. You know, there's the, James Flynn, this yeah. political philosopher, identified this heretofore unnoticed development uh, or trend that IQ scores were rising across the 20th century and, and at a pretty steady clip. And now we see what, what scientists call the reverse Flynn effect, which, you know, um, just when we need to be smarter and, and need to be as smart as we can be to tackle the daunting challenges of our world, that rise in IQ seems to have arrested or even started to reverse. So we really need the extended mind. We really need to draw on these external resources and we need to become more skilled at employing them. Well, that is a perfect segue to your first big idea, which is that we can take some of the pressure off our brains by extending our minds with our bodies. We here in the West are used to thinking of the mind and the body as separate. We're used to thinking of the mind localized in the brain as the place where thinking happens. But a burgeoning field called embodied cognition is demonstrating that thinking is actually a full body experience. 
And this is true in a few different ways. First, the internal sensations of the body, our gut feelings, they guide our perceptions and our reactions. When we learn to tune into these inner signals, we can use them to make sounder decisions and even to connect more effectively with other people. Second, the movements our bodies make affect the way we think. We tend to believe that serious thinking involves sitting still, but research shows that moving, walking, exercising, acting things out, that enhances our mental processes in ways that don't happen when we're sitting down. Third, a specific kind of movement, the gestures we make with our hands, extend our thinking by capturing and expressing concepts that we can't yet put into words. Research shows that our most advanced ideas are cutting-edge ideas. They often show up first in the motions of our hands, and then we use those motions to inform and construct the verbal account of what we're thinking. Andy, I love the story of John Coates, who gets a PhD in economics from Cambridge. Right. He goes to work as a trader at Goldman, Merrill, Deutsche Bank, and he finds that when he's hyper-rational about his process, as you say, diligent in reading economic reports and devising a brilliant trade, I'm, I'm quoting you here, impeccable in its logic and unassailable in its reasoning, he would lose money every time. <laughs> so what, what was going wrong? Yeah, and he noticed this was the case with his colleagues as well, that um, it was those hotshots from the Ivy League who were, who were not necessarily making money, but then the guy across the hall who went to some undistinguished university, this is Coates talking, um, was just printing money and they couldn't figure it out. And uh, eventually Coates came to suspect that the really good traders, the one with the with the amazing profit-making records, were not necessarily those who were the most intellectual or the most cerebral, but the ones who were best able to tune into their bodily signals. Now, that sounds really out there because we think, especially of finance as being a really sort of brain-heavy, brain-centric kind of activity. But it makes sense when you understand that there's way too much information in all of our daily lives, our daily experience for the conscious mind to attend to. The, the patterns and the regularities that we are noting and tagging all the time, they're too complex for us to hold in our conscious mind, which is a good thing because if we did, we our mental bandwidth would be completely consumed with it. But we we do store those, those patterns, the memory of those patterns in our non-conscious minds, which brings up the question of, well, okay, so I know this stuff, I know these these patterns, I can recognize them when I encounter them again, but if they're non-conscious, how do I have access to that? And the answer is, that's what our gut feelings are. Our gut feelings are like a little nudge or a little tug at our elbow saying, hey, you've seen this before, pay attention to this, this is what worked when you responded this way last time, or this is what didn't work when you responded that other way last time. And so that is why paying attention to those internal signals, which scientists call interoception, that is why someone who's more attuned to those internal signals can make better decisions and better choices because they have this other source of wisdom, of information. It's it's not a kind of, you know, new agey tune into your body kind of thing. It's actually a source of information that is drawn from your own experience, and the body is the way to access that. It's so fascinating. So it turns out that listening to this feedback from our bodies enables us to make better decisions and, and really benefit from 
pattern recognition mm-hmm. that, that we're not even aware of on a conscious level. And this was corroborated that people who are better at identifying their own heart rate, mm-hmm. right? It, it turns out some people have no idea when their heart is beating. For other people, this is totally self-evident that people who are better are more tuned into the beating of their own heart and mm-hmm. presumably other bodily signals right. are more effective, uh, like traders, right? Tra- traders who, who are better at identifying the beating of their heart are more successful. Yes, they make more money and they stay in what is notoriously this very volatile pr- profession for longer. And interestingly, traders as a group are more attuned to the beating of their heart, which is a standard test of interoception, than are you know the average people on the street. So in a way, they're being self-selected for how interoceptively attuned they are. Although this is never, you know, this is when you're looking over someone's CV and looking at, you know, where they went to school and what their previous work experience is. No one's ever asking, well, how well do you tune into this, the uh, the signals, the internal signals of your body? But it turns out that is actually a key determinant of their success. So interesting. Now, can you, Annie, identify when your heart is beating? Do you know? <laughs> you know, I, I the irony of all this is that I would say that I was certainly when I started writing this book, a very brain bound kind of person who lives in our head. So I think right. if you had asked me a few years ago, I would have said, I, I have no idea. But then once I did start paying attention to it, I am able to ascertain when my heart is beating, at least at moments when I'm at rest or at moments when I feel, you know, excited or nervous or something. It, it, it is something that you can cultivate and learn um, yes. to do through a particular kind of meditative exercise known as the body scan, which just involves paying close and non-judgmental attention to your internal signals. Yes, 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 yes. No, I love concentrating all of my focus on the feeling of my left pinky <laughs> working right away. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. And well, it, it's it, it's interesting that this is a sensitivity that we can develop, and this sensitivity is basically giving us access to a whole bunch of kind of instinctive knowledge that we have. I love the study you cite by Antonio Damasio. Mm. Um, I think it was called the Iowa Gambling Task. Do you want to share what they found? Sure. So unbeknownst to the players, the participants in the study, they they were asked to turn over uh, cards. These are digital cards that was on a, on a screen uh, from, from various decks. But what they didn't know was that Two of the decks were good in the sense that they held a lot of rewards, a lot of cards that would generate rewards for the player. And two of the card um, piles were bad in the sense that they held a lot of penalties. The task that the participants were asked to do was to, to turn over cards from the various decks in such a way that that they would maximize their rewards and minimize their penalties. But they weren't given any more instructions than that. And as they began turning over cards, choosing this deck or that deck, you know, the the penalties and the rewards started to to pile up, but in a in a very complex pattern that was not uh, apparent to people in a conscious way. At the same time, however, the the participants' skin conductance, and that's a measure of their physiological arousal, that was being measured. And that showed that when the 
uh, participants approached those bad decks, which they didn't know consciously were bad, their skin conductance started to flare, showing that they were aware that there was a threat or a, a kind of you know a danger there. And that happened many, many turns before they were consciously able to say, okay, these two are the decks that I really should be drawing cards from. These two are the decks that I should be avoiding. So in other words, their bodies knew before their conscious minds what was the smarter choice. And then subsequent research showed that people who are more interoceptively attuned, as we've been saying about the financial traders, were quicker to catch on to the composition of these decks, suggesting again that those of us who are more interoceptively attuned are able to use that information to make smarter choices. You know, Damasio, Antonio Damasio happens to be one of my favorite mm. neuroscientists. Uh, have, have you read his books, The Strange oh. Order of Things? And oh, yes. Era? Yeah, he's one of my yeah, favorites, yeah. too. Yeah, he's, he's fantastic. Not only is he just brilliant and, and so insightful, but he but he, he writes poetically, right? He's just, he's just quite beautiful. Mm. And The Strange Order of Things in particular really changed the way I thought about feelings, about my own feelings and the mm. human experience of feelings, which I, I had previously thought, as I think many of us do, that, oh gosh, that these were these sometimes like childlike impulses that I had for, you, you know, needs that we have that we that we should mature out of. Mm. And, um, you know, that feelings are often just sort of in the way of our attempt to like rationally navigate the world, right? And, and, and he makes this case that when we have a feeling, it's a kind of signal we're receiving that is giving us input on how to behave in a given environment. Mm. Should we feel mm. bold and adventurous mm. or cautious and humble? And, and, and I think it's based on this similar kind of pattern recognition. So I, I think of it in the context of saying like, okay, let's say we get drunk at a dinner party and talk too much and interrupt mm -hmm. a lot of other people and are kind of obnoxious. <laughs> and you wake up in the morning and you feel kind of horrible and humbled and contrite and apologetic. And you have those feelings before you have a kind of conscious analysis of what you've done wrong. Mm. The conclusion for me is that is that a feeling is a kind of shorthand, it's a super efficient way mm -hmm. of processing information about our environments. We usually receive our feelings, experience our feelings before we actually get to the rational analysis of a given situation. So effectively we have these instincts in the form of, of feelings or interoceptive signals, bodily sensations, it's kind of early intelligence almost. Right, right. And I wonder in that situation, Rufus, if you know the next time you're at a party and you start to pour yourself a glass of wine, if you have a sort of like sinking feeling or a feeling of, of anxiety, if that wouldn't be itself a kind of signal saying, oh, you know, you did this before and it didn't work out so well. And what's so unfortunate about, you know, a certain dimension of our culture is that we, we think that thinking involves pushing away bodily signals mm. so we can do the real work with our heads when really we should be attending to and bringing in those bodily sensations because they have this whole other dimension of information to share with us. And this sequencing of kind of conscious awareness and emotional response and instinctive response is, it turns out to be different than what we thought. And what's extraordinary to read the encounter in your book is that William James mm. figured this out a century mm -hmm. ago, right? He's, mm -hmm. He said, common sense says we beat a bear, we're frightened and, and, and we run. But in fact, we feel fear because our hearts are racing, because our palms are sweating, because our legs are propelling us forward. And I think even though he came up with this a century ago, this hypothesis, I, I, th I think the science has, has proved this out. Is that right? 
Yes. I, in fact, whenever you think that you've come across a new idea in psychology, it turns out that William James had it 100 years ago. He was amazingly prescient. But yes, there's all this incredible research being done by researchers now like Lisa Feldman Barrett, who actually, I think, yes. was a previous uh, uh, participant yes. in the club, um, showing that James's understanding of how emotion worked was, in fact, correct, that you know, we have this idea, this common sense idea or conventional idea that we experience something, we interpret it and, you know, feel an emotion, and then we direct our, our bodies to act accordingly. But instead, the causal arrow actually points in the other direction. Our, our, these processes happen so quickly, and of course, it, it, our survival depended on them happening so quickly. They happen so quickly that the brain is actually lagging behind, kind of saying, "Wait, what's going on here? What what should I be feeling? Because you know, I'm I'm running and my hands are sweating and my heart is beating. I must be afraid. There must be reason to feel fear." But that construction of emotion actually happens after the bodily reactions are already underway. And you point out that if we're interoceptively attuned, just attuned to all of our bodily signals, we can have the benefit of feeling our emotions more intensely. Mm -hmm. And we can also manage our emotions more effectively. Right. Because again, it goes back to our bodily reactions and sensations being the sort of raw materials from which our emotion is constructed. And, you know, there's there's a sort of limited number of these bodily reactions. They get appropriated or used in, in the construction of different different emotions, but they go back to that those same uh, small group of, of, um, of bodily reactions such that the reactions we have when we're nervous are very similar to the reactions we have when we're excited, you know, the beating heart and the sweaty palms. So once you go back down a level, you know, to the bodily sensations. You can then reappraise, the, the technique is called cognitive reappraisal. You can kind of get in on the ground floor on, uh, in the construction of your emotion and tell yourself instead of, I'm so nervous, I'm so nervous. And of course, our, our tendency is to say, calm down, calm down, which is really, um, you know, it's really not effective because your body feels the way it feels. Instead, go with those feelings, but construe them in a different way and say, I'm so, I'm so excited. I'm so excited to be giving this speech or <laughs> going on this podcast, you know? So, and that uh, research shows that can actually not only reduce the unpleasantness of, of feeling anxiety, but also improve your performance because the sense of being excited has a different valence or a different meaning for us than being anxious. And so as long as your the bodily sensations that you're feeling are congruent with the emotion that you're constructing for yourself. You can think of yourself as excited just as easily as you can think of yourself as nervous. I, I was sharing this with my kids yesterday in the car because they were asking me, "Dad, what's this book you're bringing you're everywhere?" <laughs> <laughs> but I told them, like in a study, you know, students who were told before taking the GRE exam that actually that feeling of stress or nervousness was a effective bodily response to a challenge and that it was gonna help them perform better and they should sort of enjoy that feeling. Those kids scored 65 points higher on the GRE, which is incredible. You know, I was also fascinated by this observation that part of our interoceptive insight is through a process of mimicking other people's facial expressions, and, and that when we we naturally mimic other people's facial expressions in order to feel their emotions, so we don't mm -hmm. we don't have like a direct ability to 
you know, uh, through ESP or something, know what other people are feeling. But by physically mimicking other people's facial expressions, which we do almost involuntarily, that generates the experience of empathy effectively because we are feeling their emotions. Right. So cool. Mimicking someone's expression, say someone's feeling sad, you mimic their expression in a, in a very subtle way. And that, that arrangement of facial muscles actually gives you the, a sensation of sadness. And then you can read that off your own body and say, oh, this other person I'm speaking to may be feeling sad. And, you know, therapists, interestingly, are, are the champions of this. They, they train to use their own bodies to understand their clients. But you can see how people who are more interoceptively attuned, and this is what research finds, are more empathetic because they have a, a keener access to what they are feeling in their own bodies and therefore what, um, what the other person is feeling as well. That's extraordinary. I love the section on how we evolved to think while we're moving. Mm. Um, you know, that, that when you think about our ancestral environment, we were generally moving. I mean, we weren't, you know, sitting on, sitting on logs for five hours at a time. We were no. moving through the, you know, through the savannah or the, or the woods. And th this has sort of validated something that I've historically done, which is I've always been a big believer in contextual exercise. I've always thought it funny that basically like that we in the modern world compartmentalize our exercise. We said like, okay, I will only exercise between eight and 8.30 in the morning. And at all other times, like I'm going to avoid sweating at all costs, right? I'm going to pay people to move my luggage. I'm going to, you know, and, and, and it's really terribly kind of odd that, that we behave that way. Because in fact, as you point out, we get these cognitive benefits from moving our bodies around that lasts maybe up to a couple hours. And so a better approach is, I, I've often had this approach of saying like living in New York City, you can do this. I would just run to a meeting and say, oh, I've got a meeting eight or 10 blocks away. Let's just sort of run over there. You know, and, and you, you get there a couple of minutes faster and you've gotten a lot more oxygen to the brain. And, and then I'll pay myself to move the luggage. <laughs> you know, I'll, tip, yeah. I'll, tip my, I'll tip myself five bucks to like, you know, I mean, it's, it's like uh, going to the gym, you know? Yeah. No, that's really smart. I mean, I, I write in the book about how we really need to rethink our approach to breaks, you know, the breaks that we take during the, the workday, because so often we use them to do just something else on our computers. We're still at our computers, but we're flipping through the news or through Twitter, which is exactly drawing down the exact same cognitive resources that we use to do our work. So then half an hour later, we, we return to our work and we're sort of more frazzled than we were before our break. So really, instead of coffee breaks or social media breaks, we should be taking movement breaks and moving our bodies. And then once we do that, we return to our work in a different frame of mind and one that's more mm -hmm. suited to um, that you actually return to work more cognitively ready and prepared and, and effective than you were before. Speaking of breaks, it's time for us to take one. When we come back, Andy tells us why we're all bilingual and don't even know it. Well, Annie, let's talk about gesturing. Mm -hmm. um, 
This is you really have good tidings for gesturers, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. You say that we're we're bilingual, e- even those of us uh, who only speak one language. We're bilingual because gesturing is is effectively a, a second language. Yeah, or or you might even say our first language because it was first okay, in our right, right. first in our evolution, and then that re- recapitulates itself in you know in infants and children that they gesture and communicate quite a lot with gesture long before they can mm. say words. So interesting. And, and you cite research that shows that people who gesture more speak more fluently, mm-hmm. they make fewer mistakes, and the act of gesturing helps us think, right? It, it's part of the process of, of thinking through what we're gonna say effectively. Right. Yeah, I think we're so used to thinking of gesture as a means of communicating to others, and it is that. I mean, there's research showing that people yeah. remember what you say, the points that you make when they are accompanied by gestures, they remember those points better than points that are not accompanied by gesture. But gesture is equally as important or maybe more important for our own thinking. And I think it's so fascinating that our our most advanced ideas, our newest ideas, the ones that we can't quite put into words yet, they show up in our gestures. And then we use that kind of self-created information to inform our verbal account. So we're actually helping ourselves think when we move our hands. And that's why it's it's unfortunate that often gesturing is looked down upon in our society. You know, it's it's looked mm-hmm, upon as mm-hmm. it's seen as sort of gauche or like uncouth, mm-hmm. you know, when actually yep. it it is the pathway to speaking more fluently and more eloquently. Well, as someone who has literally knocked cocktails out of people's <laughs> hands <laughs> while mm-hmm. gesturing a little mm-hmm. too enthusiastically, this is, I consider this to be great news because <laughs> I've caught myself historically kind of tamping down the gesture mm. impulse because it mm. feels almost sort of grandiose or something mm. or like it's, mm. but it's, it's, it, it's this very primal, Mm-hmm. thing that right that, that that we all should should encourage and and you point out that actually socioeconomic differences and how often parents use their hands when talking to children may be producing what we would call a gesture gap Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we're, I think most people are familiar at this point with the idea that you should talk to young children, you know, that talk as much as possible, expose them to as much spoken language as possible. But we, we haven't gotten that message about gesture. But as you say, you know, children are very attuned to gesture. In fact, often they'll use their own gestures to elicit words from their parents when, they, when they're learning words. So they'll point to something, the parent will supply the word, and then that researchers have found that that word often shows up in the child's vocabulary not long after. So they're actually using their hands to tell their parents what to say. And so the more the parent gestures, this is the research you were referring to, the larger their spoken word vocabulary when they start school. And there is a socioeconomic difference in terms of how often parents gesture, affluent parents tend to gesture more, lower income parents tend to gesture less, and that's reflected in their children's rate of gesturing. But the good news is that with just a, some pretty basic instruction, all parents can learn to gesture more, and then that's reflected in their in their kids' gesturing and subsequently in their vocabulary. So it's really just something that parents need to you know, be made aware of. And you also point out that in, as the world has become more digital, that we need to reframe our our Zoom cameras a little bit to give ourselves a chance to share our gestures. And and you point out that learning platforms should also take advantage of of the power of gesture. 
Yes, I, I, that's especially true, I think, with um, online language learning, foreign language learning, mm -hmm. which seems like such mm -hmm. a perfect opportunity to incorporate gesture, but doesn't seem to do so, you know, programs like Duolingo and Rosetta Stone. Uh, there's all this research suggesting that when you pair a foreign language vocabulary word with a gesture, that um, vocabulary word is much better remembered. And um, there's been interesting research on using like a, a, a cartoon avatar um, to teach language. The avatar makes a gesture and then the, the student re repeats it. And that increases uh, how well they learn the vocabulary word. So those are some ways in which we could be using gesture and for whatever reason, we're not right now. So interesting. That, that reminds me of the great detail that actors tend to remember the lines they deliver on stage more accurately if they are delivered with a gesture or some kind of physical movement, you know, which gets back to this notion that we are, that we evolved as physical monkeys in, in space, right? And, 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 and mm -hmm. we, think, we think through movement, it's wild. Right. Um, well, luckily, we, we we monkeys are getting to move about in space more now that like the world is opening up again. Yes. Uh, we're spending less time on Zoom. And this brings us to your second big idea. You say we can also extend our minds with physical space. It's common in our culture to compare the brain to a computer. But this is actually a deeply flawed analogy. You can think about it this way. A laptop operates exactly the same way, whether it's open on a desk in an office or whether it's on a bench in a park. It works the same way whether it's set next to a sunny window or whether it's being used in a dark, dank basement. But human brains aren't like that. They're exquisitely sensitive to context, to place. And one of the most fertile and fruitful places to think with is nature, the outdoors. And that's because over eons of evolution, our brains were tuned to the kind of sensory information that's available in the natural world. Spending time in the hard-edged, highly designed, built environment drains our mental resources. And spending time in nature actually replenishes them. But we can also deliberately arrange the interior spaces we occupy in ways that extend our thinking. Research shows that it's especially important that we feel a sense of control, a sense of ownership over the space in which we do our learning or working. It's also important to incorporate into these spaces cues of identity, that is, objects or symbols of who you are, what you're doing in that space, what your role there is. And also cues of belonging, objects or symbols that represent your membership in a group that's meaningful to you. In The Extended Mind, I also write about making use of what I call the space of ideas. And this refers to the process of getting information out of our heads and into physical space, whether that space is a sketch pad or a whiteboard or a set of post-it notes or even a physical model that you're interacting with. And this kind of offloading, as cognitive scientists call it, has several benefits for our thinking. One is that it relieves the burden of keeping that information in mind. Getting it out of our heads and onto paper or another physical surface frees up mental resources for higher order thinking about that material. Another benefit of offloading is that you can then inspect that information with your senses. You can see how it looks, you can read it aloud and hear how it sounds. You're granted what one psychologist calls the detachment gain. That is, you put a little space between yourself and your thoughts, 
And that resulting detachment allows you to think about your thoughts more intelligently. In our brain-centric culture, we tend to do far too much in our heads when actually we'd be thinking more effectively and more efficiently if we moved our mental contents out of our heads more often. I love the quote that you include in the book from Frederick Olmsted, who designed mm-hmm. Central Park. He says, natural scenery employs the mind without fatigue and yet enlivens it and thus gives the effect of refreshing rest and reinvigoration of the whole system. Uh, mm. which, which, of course, we feel, right, with a nice walk right. in the woods or... Or Central Park. <laughs> which or Central created. Park. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, uh, yeah. Frederick. And yet you point out that we needed to erect walls in order to create space where we can think in a solitary environment, right? It's, you know, so you said that, like, that having a room of your own is to some degree a prerequisite for clear thinking. Right. There's an interesting tension there, isn't there? Right, between like, on the one hand, we evolved in nature and we're happiest there, but you also say that we need walls and privacy for certain kinds of, of, of thinking. Right, and I think that speaks to, you know, the demands that we make on our brains uh, these days, you know, to, to focus for hours upon hours on these abstract symbols, which is what most of our, you know, our work consists of these days, is not a natural thing for the brain to do, and it needs help to do it. And when we are trying to engage in that kind of activity, where our our attention and our focus is automatically drawn to those things that we we did evolve to be engaged by, like social interactions, like novelty, like moving shapes in our in our peripheral vision, and that's why the open office is the worst invention, <laughs> you know, of the 20th century. Um, and something that I, I hope, you know, as we're returning to offices from uh, our remote work that we had to do during the pandemic, we have an opportunity to rethink the spaces in which we do our work. And I, I'm a little concerned about the the directions that I see it, it get, taking. I, I hear a lot of uh, friends saying that their workplaces are adopting a hoteling or a hot desking kind of arrangement mm-hmm, where mm-hmm. You, people don't have dedicated desks, let alone private offices, and just sort of grab whatever desk is available when they come into the office. And that totally goes against, you know, what the, what the research is telling us about the importance of a sense of ownership, the importance of privacy, the importance of control. And also this, um, the other piece about cues of identity and cues of belonging. If we're mm. If we're in a space that was somebody else's yesterday and will be somebody else's tomorrow, you know, I don't know how much mm-hmm. identification we can really feel with that space. I found that so interesting that objects tell us these important things about mm-hmm. ourselves, mm-hmm. like and that, that, that we surround ourselves with these things that remind us who we are. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. Isn't that right. interesting? It's a, it's yeah. actually kind of sweet, isn't it? This yeah. human impulse to, and and it's a suggestion that we need those reminders, right? That that. that maybe our identities are not quite as completely constant as we might imagine, which is another another subject that's emerging right. in, in neuroscience uh, these, mm-hmm. these, these mm-hmm. days, right? And also that we have many identities. You know, another thing that research is showing us is that the identity that we're currently identified with in the moment, that changes, that affects and influences what we pay attention to and what seems salient to us. So when we have cues that remind us of our identity as a thinker, as a writer, as a worker that are surrounding us, then we've put ourselves in 
a state to do our best work. You know, it's kind of like regulating ourselves from the outside in rather than the way we're taught to think, you know, in terms of mustering these internal resources. It's so funny. I, I was reading that passage in your book and I looked up from my desk at a, at a large bulletin board I have over the desk where I saw a colorful abstract painting that I'd made kind of in five minutes with a kid's art easel, but that was sort of a reminder of creative impulses, a, a photo of my great-great-grandfather, who's sort of an inspirational figure that I, who, who caused me to think many things are possible, uh, some drawings fr from my boys and a, and a note from one of them, some diagrams I'd sketched for an, an embryonic novel. And I, re I realized that I had not been aware of the fact that I was assembling this collage of the breadth of my interests as just a kind of reminder. It's, it's amazing because I, 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 it was not an intentional act at all. It just yeah. sort of happened. Yeah, that's beautiful. And it was it, those are not only cues of your, your identity, but also cues of belonging to your family and to a profession. And um, which and those those cues are important as well. And I think there's so many ways in which our institutions often don't give off cues of belonging, especially to you know particular groups. And we could take a much harder look at the messages that our physical spaces are giving to people when they enter that space. One of the concrete ways in which your book has modified my behavior, hopefully for the long term, is journaling. So I've known for years that I should be journaling. Mm. But it, whenever I tried over the years, it always felt a little bit sort of self-indulgent and, and and silly to write about your day, you know, to, to sort of hit an hour. It didn't entirely seem necessary. I, I've tried a few times. But your description of why it's so important to offload these, you know, these thoughts that we have, and, and very specifically, the example of Charles Darwin, who we conclude never would have accomplished what he accomplished without a kind of religious journaling practice. This pushed me over the line. And now for, for two weeks, Annie, I have been journaling three or four days per week. It should be seven. And I love it. And I'm seeing the benefits. Um, why should we all be journaling? Oh, I'm so glad to hear that because I love that story about Darwin too. And and it it begins with his famous trip on the HMS Beagle when he was the naturalist on board. And he actually learned this habit of taking very scrupulous notes about everything that happened to him. He learned that from the ship's captain yes. that he was assisting. It was this sort of nautical custom that he had not Darwin had not practiced before until he was on the, living on the ship for months at a time. And then he 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 kept up this practice even when he went on, on shore to, to continue his explorations. And I try to show in the book how he actually worked out the th his theory of evolution on paper, you know, in a way that might have been very difficult if he tried to do it in his head. And I think that is the main benefit of putting things down on paper is that it creates, you know, what psychologists psychologists would call a different set of affordances um, for for what you can do with your thoughts. You know, it may seem like a thought in the head is the same as a thought put down on paper, but they're actually two very different things. And you get that detachment gain that I talked about in the clip earlier. When you offload that information from your head, you not only create more space in your in your brain to to do that higher level thinking, but you also can relate to that thought on the paper in a different way from when it was in your head. It, it makes total sense to me that and and you know again, I think it's it's this expression of humility, right? That our memories mm -hmm. are porous, mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And this mm-hmm. habit of writing things down it kind of multiplies our working memories to some degree, right? It, and and, right. and what we find is that one can get into this nice cycle of offloading ideas, generating new ideas, offloading those, and generating further new ones. There's this kind of virtuous cycle you get to. And the, sometimes the cost of getting to that place is that you have to write down a bunch of obvious stuff, right? <laughs> I mean, you have to write a couple, a few paragraphs that are just totally self-evident to you, you know? <laughs> but then at some point, something triggers something else. Do, do you have a journaling practice? I prefer to call it a field notebook, kind of borrowing okay. from the scientists that I that I interviewed yeah. and 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 Darwin's example, because to me that takes some of the pressure off. Like it, yes. it's just sort of notes that I take um, rather than some kind of complete account of my day, and that it also makes me feel a little bit less, as you said, self indulgent. Like it's not like I'm writing in a diary. Right. <laughs> you know, it's more it's more like an account of my observations, sort of as if I am being a scientist of my own life. Like that's mm-hmm. how I prefer, mm-hmm. that's how I prefer to think of it. It's interesting. I, I title mine report. You're right. The Rufus Report. It's the Rufus Report. <laughs> but when we don't write things down, we can also get kind of constipated and jammed, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, and uh, I mean, I think that this, uh, I mean, I found this with sort of creative projects that I'm working on that you can have this kind of swirl of ideas that are developing in your mm, head. Mm. Um, and if you if you have an exaggerated idea of your capacity mm-hmm. to hold in your head a, a large volume of ideas and sequential information, that overconfidence can result in this kind of constipation, <laughs> what I'm referring to, right? I, I mean, you, you kind of need to offload it to free up those those resources. You do. And I think one reason that we don't do it more often is that we have this notion that really smart people do it all in their heads. You know, we admire right. people who can do things in their heads, like chess grandmasters who can plan out, you know, move after move in their heads, or memory champions who can remember incredible amounts of information without consulting a piece of paper. It's 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 really um a misleading notion that the the smartest people among us do it in their heads because in fact there's lots of interesting research on the way that architects and designers and artists do engage in this conversation between uh eye and hand in a way that that is a a, a lo- it becomes a locus of creation that couldn't happen just in their heads they don't try to do it all in their heads they know that there's um, something that happens once you start putting pencil to paper, and I, you know, and I encourage people to draw as well as take notes in a, in a field notebook because drawing can so often instantly reveal what we know and what we don't know. And people often will say when I suggest this, but I, I can't draw. I'm not an artist, you know. But that's not what it's about. It's really about representing in visual terms what you know and what you don't know. And drawing can be such a useful. Uh, avenue to to understanding your thoughts in a different way than when they were inside your head. And even those people who are capable of these extraordinary feats mm. inside their own heads, such as these these memory champions, as you say, tend to employ this this method of loci or this this right. mind palace strategy, right? Where they're actually envisioning a physical place right. and assigning a location. So so that e- even though they are doing that inside their cranium, uh, they're employing our relationship with the outside world and our facility with remembering things in the outside world in order to achieve that. 
Right, right. They're drawing on this natural human strength that we have for navigating through three-dimensional landscapes. And they're applying that to the space of ideas, as I call it. And the more we can do that, the more we can turn ideas into objects or arrange them in a landscape that we can actually physically navigate through. I mean, if we're talking about like um, a big whiteboard where we can use our peripheral vision and use our spatial memory to remember where things are, or even if we have an extra big computer monitor or multi-monitor setup, we can actually bring our bodies and our bodies sort of natural resources of navigation to this world of ideas. And we just, all of all of those capacities are wasted when we're just hunched over looking at this little screen as we so often do. Well, thank you for bringing up the argument for large and multiple screens, because this this really, again, fits perfectly into the category of things that I would like to do. <laughs> um, I've always liked big multiple screens. It's always been an indulgence of mine, but justifying the budgetary allocation was difficult <laughs> before your book. Many of us remember watching Minority Report for the first mm-hmm. time, came out in 2002. And I remember watching the movie and Tom Cruise is up there surrounded by these holographic screens and he's grabbing images and stopping them, zeroing in, moving them out, pinching in, pinching out. This was, of course, before iPads, before touchscreens. And so it really generated quite a bit of interest and attention. And and you tell this story in the book, right? It turns out that Spielberg, the director of the film, had engaged an MIT lab to do the research, right, that was necessary to generate that scene. Right. And and now one of the guys who worked on that research is the CEO of a company that's trying to build the technology. So what yeah. what's the uh what's the story there? Well, apparently Spielberg treated this, you know, he was creating a fictional world obviously, you know, reflecting this short story by Philip K Dick, but um he treated the development of the technology that was shown on screen as an R&D effort is what the the MIT uh, professors who were involved say. And in fact, um John Underkoffler, who's who led this effort to to develop this, you know, at the time, just really mind blowing technology that no one had ever seen before. He said that he had all these CEOs come up to him after the movie came out and said, is that real? And if it's not real, can I pay you to develop that? <laughs> because they saw the potential. Um, and so he did actually, he's he's the one who founded his own company to create a minority report like interface. Um, but all of us can sort of take advantage of exactly what we saw um, Tom Cruise doing in the movie when he's he's physically using his body, he's turning his torso, he's reaching out, you know, the more we can engage those navigational capacities, which, again, like, we're so used to thinking and working as as happening when we're sitting still in one spot. And that's really a wrongheaded notion of how thinking should happen. It's so interesting, you're right, that, that we're, we're basically just better at organizing ideas in a physical space. And so this this makes the case both for very large screens. And I think I think there are studies that you cite that involved huge screens, like three or four feet tall mm-hmm, by 10 mm-hmm. feet wide, and found right. that people were more efficient and more effective operating uh, with these right. massive screens. And But I think the same would apply to like large bulletin boards, post-it mm-hmm. notes, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm. did you do this, Annie, in writing this book? Did you, did you <laughs> cover a wall with, with uh, mm-hmm. notes and- I did. I did. Post-it notes are my best friend. You know, this this particular project, Writing the Extended Mind, drew on so many different 
uh, bodies of research, so many thousands of studies. You know, I really, I've, I've often said I could not have written this book without the lessons that I learned about the extended mind. If I tried to do it all in my head, I think my head would have exploded. So it was actually, I was my own, you know, um, mm-hmm. best customer for this, for these ideas, because they really helped me to write the book. I can imagine. No, it is It is an ambitious and extremely comprehensive book. And I would think that you would need a minority report holographic screen plus uh, a, a few rooms full of post-it notes to put it all together. Well, so these are all you know, powerful tactile strategies, but perhaps even more powerful is the impact of interacting with other humans, doing what we're doing right now, having a conversation. And that brings us to your last big idea, which is that one of the best ways to extend our minds is through other people. Annie's going to share that big idea right after this break. Welcome back to the show. Let's do a quick recap. Annie's first big idea is that we can actually think by using our bodies. Her second big idea is that place matters. Our surroundings influence our minds. Now it's time for big idea number three. So often we assume that real thinking, serious thinking is done alone. You know, someone bent over a book alone in a room. But in fact, humans think best when they're interacting socially with others. So social activities like debating, storytelling, teaching, these activate mental processes that remain dormant when we're by ourselves. In fact, when we structure our interactions with others in the right way, we can actually engage a kind of group mind, a collective entity that is more intelligent than any one of its members. I'll give you an example of that. There's a process that psychologists call transactive memory, which refers to the fact that members of a group each have their own specialty, the area in which they are an expert. No one can know or remember everything, obviously, but if you keep track of what others know, you can effectively multiply your access to a wealth of knowledge that would be too voluminous to be held inside any one person's head. So we we spoke earlier about the limitations of our brains, right? That that we've learned quite a bit more in recent decades uh, with the help of folks like Daniel Kahneman mm-hmm. about, about human biases and, and limitations. Kahneman says in Thinking Fast and Slow, the human mind is a machine for jumping to conclusions. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what's gone wrong? Like these things, you know, they, we've really got some crappy brains here. And then there's this kind of hiding in plain sight, like surprisingly obvious answer to this question, which I just find so interesting that we did not evolve to think alone, right? Right, We we always thought in groups of people, right? And do you want to share the work of of Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber? Yeah, Sperber. Yeah, I find their work so fascinating. Just as you said, I mean, they refer to the way that Kahneman and others talk about the the human mind as they talk about it like it's a flawed superpower like again it's like it's the brain's so extraordinary it's so amazing but wait you know it's it's so also so flawed and it and it fails so often so how do we explain that and you know uh Hugo Mercier and and um Dan Sperber who are both cognitive scientists they say well it's because we're using our faculties of reason in context in which they they never evolved to be used. They evolved to be used in social settings in which we are 
picking apart the arguments of others and doing our very best to defend our own arguments and put the best version we can come up with of our argument out there to others. And so we're actually quite good at at, uh, finding the flaws in other people's arguments, but we can at the same time be very blind to the flaws in our own arguments. So the way to get around the way that our faculty of reasoning has evolved is to use it in the context in which it originally was intended, which is a social context. And, you know, we all know that, um, you know, arguing and debating doesn't always lead to better solutions, but it can if people come into it with the shared goal of getting as close as possible to the truth and practicing the method of making their own best argument, but keeping their minds open to hearing a critique of that argument from other people. And that is the strategy by which we can best make use of our evolved reasoning faculty. Well, you cite the example of Brad Bird and John Walker, mm-hmm. who collaborated on making the, the wonderful movies Ratatouille and The Incredibles at Pixar. And they were, they were well known for their epic arguments on the set. We actually have a clip of Brad and John bickering. Whimsical. But you know, it is not I know, whimsical. I'm just telling, I didn't say it I was. I am the least whimsical guy. I didn't, I didn't say it Every was. part of the buffalo gets used. Okay, well, you know? I'll argue with you about gooey Jack-Jack. I, you know, I won't argue hey, with you. Hey, did I not I know, cut it? I know, you did. And I cut it. That's excellent. That was an excellent decision. One of your best. <laughs> Productive disagreement comes naturally in my marriage, Annie, but uh, I have to make more of an effort in the workplace, mm-hmm. you know, and, and mm-hmm. that we've been, we, one of the things we try to do at the Next Big Idea Club is incorporate all the things we learn from all the wonderful books we read. And, and, and we've, we've been making that effort because it's just, it, it's easy to be conflict averse. It really is. I think there's kind of a, a culture of let's all get along, let's all agree. And, and, you know, of course, we all want to have smooth interactions with our coworkers, but there's a place for argument and debate that doesn't get personal. That again, I think what you can really see in those clips with Brad Bird and John Walker is that what bonds them together and what makes the the fighting and the arguing okay is that they both passionately want the same thing. They just, you know, yes. maybe have different views about how to get there. Yes. And so that really creates the um, constructive tension in their relationship that makes for a better product. Exactly right. And meanwhile, our motivation is also greater in groups. I mean, I think that's something that we can relate with, that if we're working with a team of people and we have a shared goal, Mm -hmm. that becomes an intrinsic source of of motivation. Right, And and one that we don't often take advantage of because our culture is so individualistic and our rewards are and incentives are arranged to reward individual effort. But when we do that, we're missing out on this huge source of motivation, which comes from joint effort and and shared effort. And it, it really just requires making people feel like they're part of a team and as if each of their efforts are, are tied together, they have a kind of shared fate and what one person contributes affects all the all the others. But again, we have this sort of each every man for himself kind of culture in in academics and in the workplace that kind of puts that resource of group motivation that doesn't allow it to flower. You know, a theme that's been emerging for me, I'm, I'm realizing in, in recent months and maybe years, is this idea that that maybe all human success is team success. Mm. You know, that life is a team sport. 
And th there's a collective effort uh, in, in almost everything we do, it strikes me. I mean, even if, if you like, what's the most isolated thing that, that somebody creates? Maybe a novel or a work mm -hmm. of art. Mm -hmm. But even a novel is part of a conversation of hundreds of novels that novelist has read that influence the author, conversations overheard in restaurants. What do you think about this idea that maybe like all human success is collective success on some level? Oh, I I love it. And I, I couldn't agree more. It actually made me think of the finding, a finding that I really, or, or an idea that I really love that I write about in the book that linguists think that even this internal process of thinking that we imagine is so individual and internal is really just internalized conversations with mm. you know all the voices that we've that we've heard and that have educated us and guided us in the past well and 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 if if this all successes group success isn't controversial enough i would take it up a notch and maybe <laughs> say that that more collaborative creations are generally better than less collaborative creations. And we, we had this conversation with Walter Isaacson recently um, about how science is increasingly a team effort. Yes. I would throw out that the great television shows of our era, you know, sh shows for me like Breaking Bad or Sopranos or whatever, are, are not unlike the great 19th century novels, um, really phenomenal artistic creations. And they are better because they're created by teams of people. And we even see writers like Malcolm Gladwell now writing uh, who sees podcasts and audio productions as kind of the center of his current and future production. But he, he, he might say that it's a more powerful medium to deliver the, you know, ideas in audio, but it's also more fun because it's because it's collaborative, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> because we're doing it with teams of people. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it, yeah. it's social, right? Right. I, I mean, I think it's really interesting that you you listed there a few different industries where this has mm -hmm, become mm -hmm. the norm, and I'm wondering if that's it's going to spread to other industries where it's it's still the norm to yes. to work individually and give credit individually. And I'm really interested in the practices of industries that have codified this and and developed very structured ways of collaborating. I'm thinking in particular of mm, computer programmers who sometimes could, they work in pairs, almost like two brains, you know, almost linked in a way. And they're so intensively um, engaged with each other. And they're able in that way to get the the coding done much more quickly and efficiently and accurately. And I think those those kind of industries are actually leading the way in in a sense that I think the rest of us could really gain some some insight into our own practices if we were to pay attention to what they're doing. You do such a good job in this book of describing why it is that our collective thinking is superior to individual thinking, not to mention more fun, as I've said. And yet I think that this butts up against a peculiarly American, maybe Western, mythology of individual achievement. We think of the automobile as invented by Henry Ford or the light bulb by Edison. It's vastly more complicated, mm -hmm. right? There, there, there really have been right. dialogues and conversations and collective learnings uh, that made possible all these breakthroughs, yes. right? So we basically have created a kind of false narrative of solitary individual achievement. Uh, and, and why is that, do you think? Yeah, I think we actually are seeing two very fundamental human impulses and instincts colliding here. Because as you say, there's the the fact that humans have always lived, worked, thought in, in groups. And then there's this other tendency, which is how important 
story is to the way we understand the world. And it's just much easier and more satisfying, honestly, to tell a story about an individual facing yes. conflict, overcoming right. conflict, triumphing over conflict, than to tell a story about a network of people, you know? I mean, yes. so I think yes. those stories are just very, very powerful. They exert a lot of influence over the way we think things happen. That's right. That's right. And I and I would say that part of that architecture of the story, which which kind of fits into a primal human kind of view of the world, is about human agency, is about a desire mm. to feel powerful as individuals, right? And stories make us feel powerful and, and, and suggest to us that there, we have the potential for you know, great individual agency in the world. But the big problem, which you, is sort of a central theme of your book, is that this mythology of individual achievement makes it harder for people to achieve new things Mm -hmm. because we're not very good at thinking in isolation. You know, we need to right. give ourselves permission, right, to interact with each other, collaborate, and use these various tools to, to think better. Right. And I do want to acknowledge, Rufus, that um, although... I think maybe you enjoy working in groups more, maybe more than most people, or you've had really positive experiences. Because one thing I do that does come up when I talk about group work is that it almost universally elicits a groan, you know, and I talk about in the book that psychologists have even come up with this term um, called group hate, meaning like the the feeling of dread that overcomes you when you learn you have to do something with a group. And I think that's because so many of our practices around thinking and working have been designed with individual work in mind, and they do fail. They do fail us, and they do mm, um, create a lot of dysfunction when we try to apply them to group work, which, of course, so much of our work needs to be group work these days. And we just haven't caught up with that. Re our practices haven't caught up with that reality. And so people often experience teamwork or group work as very unsatisfying and even unpleasant. And I think that's something we'll, we'll need to address going forward. Interesting. Well, and, and I think that the best cycle probably for collaboration, which I think you allude to in places, is a combination of going back to our corners and our, our lovely right. little, little, little private spaces, right? And, and, and noodling on things and working through ideas and then coming back together or there's, right? I mean, don't you think, uh, I, th I think you referenced this, right? The, the, I the do. value, right? Yes, yes. There's this wonderful idea of intermittent collaboration that that actually produces the best results better than collaborating constantly and better than just, you know, a solitary kind of working alone. And one thing I wasn't, I don't think I was able to include it in the book, but that's even true for digital collaboration, online collaboration, that the best work is produced by patterns that psychologists call bursty, you know, like bursts of of like lots of messages flying back and forth. Yes. And then every and then everyone goes back and thinks about things for a while. And then there's another group burst of communication. Right, right. And I think a lot of people have enjoyed that in the last year, right? Mm -hmm. Even though, mm -hmm. even though we know that there are limitations to to video conferencing, and we do need to mm -hmm. and, and enjoy getting together in person, that we have had the space to do, you know, great solitary work, but also collaborate in, in safe spaces. And um, well, Annie, thank you so much uh, for your time today. It's just such a fascinating topic and such a wonderful book. And um, we really Thank enjoyed you. the conversation. Thank you. Yeah, this has been so much fun talking about it with you, Rufus. Thank you. Would you like to hear not three, but five big ideas from the extended mind? Download the Next Big Idea app and check out Annie's Book Bite. 
And why stop there? In our app, you'll also find 12-minute audio summaries of groundbreaking new books, Zoom discussions with your favorite authors, and mind-blowing e-courses. Search for Next Big Idea in your app store. If you love what we're doing, I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to share any thoughts on this and other episodes on Twitter. I'm at RoofGrisk. That's at R-U-F-G-R-I-S-C. Special thanks to Annie Murphy-Paul. The Extended Mind is available wherever books are sold, including in the Next Big Idea app. I also want to thank my friends Ellen and Michael Diamond. When my apartment got too raucous, they let me record in a quiet, beautifully air-conditioned corner of theirs, and they brought me a beautiful glass of ice water. Thank you. Kayla Bissinger wrote and produced this episode. Our executive producer is Michael Kopnat. Theme music by Costa Galanopoulos. Sound design by Mike Toda. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. See you next week.